Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets Podcast. It is October the 18th, and I just want to begin by echoing uh, the statement of the UAE government as well as the United Nations in uh, uh, just the outrageous bombing, condemning the bombing of a hospital in Gaza overnight where the UN have come out and uh, uh, and, and uh, declared, uh, condemned it, and the UAE government has. And we echo that this morning uh, in recognition that just some things are uh, just too too brutal to ignore. Uh, good morning, and, and we are here looking at the oil markets. Uh, the oil markets have moved up above $91 a barrel uh, back into territory uh, of uh, you know the elevated levels although we have seen in recent weeks uh, we did get up to above 96 on Brent and so we still haven't reclaimed that ground despite all of the geopolitical uh, noise and, and 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 sort of turmoil in the region and let's kick off this morning with Kate Durian uh, the Mies contributing editor non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington Kate, uh, <clears throat> looking at the sort of growing uh, geopolitical framework, the U.S. president due in the region today, uh, your thoughts and outlook for this regional uh, challenge, and is it going to, uh, do you expect it to grow and have greater greater consequence for energy markets? I mean, it already has had a, a consequence on the, on the energy market prices. Have moved. I mean, initially they didn't because it didn't look like it was going to, the noises that were coming from the countries that you fear might be drawn into it, I think, were were quite measured. You know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't fire and brimstone. Now I think we're seeing a, a totally different. Um, out, I think the, the the hospital bombing might change the equation a lot because it's just it was so horrific, and I think for a while it was the horror at what Hamas had done. And I think now it's moving away from that. Um, but it has polarized, uh, you know, the, it, it has polarized the world. Um, I don't think Hezbollah has shown any great desire to actually actively engage. I think they're keeping it sort of, you know, a, a few skirmishes in, in the South. But you never know when, you know, when something is going to... Uh, but it's also it, worth it, noting a former colleague of yours at Reuters was killed by... Uh, an Israeli missile while covering that border only yeah. a few days ago. Yes, but you know, it's um, it, it, as as Israelis will say, it's war. There's going to be civilian casualties, but again, I, I don't think we still know what actually happened. Um, but that hospital, you know, the, the, the jury is still out on that one. But um, and you know, the fact that that the U.S. has sent these um, aircraft carriers to the region, I think, will probably deter countries. You know, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of talk. There's going to be a lot of declarations being made, but whether anybody has an appetite to actually get actively involved um, is uh, you know, is is another story. But I don't think there's a chance. For example, everybody keeps talking about the Strait of Hormuz is going to be shut down. Remind me when it was last shut down. I mean, there could be an attempt, but you know, who's going to be cutting their nose to, to, to spite their face? Um, who suffers most if the Strait of Hormuz is closed? It's not going to be Saudi Arabia. It's going to be mainly Iran, Iraq. So I think the chances of the Strait of Hormuz, the chances that 
supply would actually be affected unless there's something really, really, you know, unforeseen. I don't think that's going to have much of an impact. I think so long as it's contained, um, prices are not likely to move, you know, to 100 as people had, had, had expected. But I think it's, it's just so unpredictable what might happen next that, I, you know, I don't want to make any predictions. Dr. Charles Elinas, CEO, Cypress Natural Hydrocarbons uh, and Senior Fellow at the Global Energy Centre, Atlantic Council. With all of those job titles, Dr. Charles, you're well-placed to bridge that Atlantic uh, basin, if you like, connecting the MED with Europe, uh, the Europe with the, the US and the Atlantic. Where do you see the perspective from Europe on this? It does seem like there's sort of a, 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 a different voices. We've heard von der Leyen being, and most capitals in Europe being sort of pro- profoundly supportive of Israel's position in the early days. Your thoughts on the outlook of this uh, becoming a, a bigger challenge for Europe? Well, first of all, Europe is a little bit sidelined on this. Even though Van der Leyen went to Israel, she has been criticized by quite a few capitals for doing so without uh, taking advice or, or reflecting uh, European views. Um, I'm sitting here in Nicosia in Cyprus, and uh, Nicosia uh, has been quite critical of that because right now uh, ref- uh, people fleeing Israel and Palestine arriving here in, in huge numbers and it's felt that Europe is not having a coherent policy towards uh, the situation in Israel um, even though it's making the news uh, the news is all about the United States and what the United States will do and nothing about what Europe might or might not do it seems to me that uh, Europe has managed to sideline itself and unable to influence what is actually happening in 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 uh, in Israel, in um, Gaza. The situation in Europe is is starting to feel like obviously there could be um, some you know ramifications and fallout. Let's go to Daniel Richards, mean economist at Emirates MBD. Daniel, uh, the 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 region as a whole. Uh, the the Gulf, etc., has had a a very good sort of economic performance this year, despite the, some data out of Saudi showing a, a drop off in GDP with the the lower oil production. But generally, your your outlook for the region into the fourth quarter, with the shadows of all of this turmoil, do you, the expectation for the Gulf economies to continue to perform. Yeah, obviously, I'd like to echo your sentiments. First of all, have the awful attack last night, and indeed everything we've seen over the past week, week and a half, really is quite, really quite awful. It's blown up to this degree once again. With regards to the impact on the GCC, as you say, like this year has been an extraordinary year. Uh, for non-oil economies at least, and any slowdown we're seeing in headline GDP that is largely or entirely on the back of the um, of the voluntary oil production cuts. Obviously, hydrocarbons economy is still very important in the region, so voluntary cuts equal slower GDP growth. For non-oil GDP, the outlook is still pretty bullish. I think that was underlined by what we saw this week uh, in terms of the data. Uh, Dubai in particular, strong first half uh, GDP growth, uh, second quarter is at 3.6% year on year. And we'd expect, um, as it stands, our, our, our forecast for the whole year is a 4% 
growth in Dubai and the expectation of stronger H2 growth. Um, that is largely on base effects. In terms of quarter on quarter, we were already anticipating a bit of a slowdown. And what we're seeing now in a wider region does raise risks to that every time uh, Middle East conflict flares up. It does um, perhaps uh, deter some visitors to the region and tourism really has been the key driver of growth in Dubai, not only through the direct effect of hotels and, and, and transport, but also the pass through to construction and real estate and everything really. So it is important. As it stands, uh, we would expect uh, this, it, it to remain fairly contained. Um, as Kate was saying, there has been the initial kind of saber rattling perhaps hasn't been followed through, thankfully, to date by anybody, but more instances of the kind that we saw last night, that tragic event last night, does raise tensions, does raise a risk, it does escalate. And of course, if that did blow up into a wider conflict, that would have very severe effects on, on GCC economies. Kate, looking at the fundamentals here, I mean, as we go into the fourth quarter, we uh, had all of the expectation and, 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 and despite the sort of price correction pre the, the tragic events in, 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 in the Eastern Mediterranean and that the, you know, the, 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 the outlook for the fourth quarter was built on fundamentals of supply shortage and relatively robust demand. Does that continue to be ultimately the foundation of this market? Um, I mean, I think we all expected that um, the first quarter of next year, and I think the question was, is Saudi Arabia going to be extending its voluntary cut? I think if we knew that, we'd all be very rich because they like to surprise us. But um, I think the the expectation is that there will be a surplus um, in the first quarter of 2024, and it won't be coming from OPEC plus. It's going to be non-OPEC. It was going to be Guyana, <clears throat> even the US. So I think... If, if the predictions of you know demand growth slowing in the first quarter, then I I don't see any justification why OPEC Plus would extend the cuts. I mean, don't forget there are new uh, baselines coming and new quotas coming in in January, so we kind of have an idea of where OPEC Plus is going to be. What we don't know is whether Saudi Arabia will again spring a surprise. But I think in in times of tension, do you want to pour more you know fuel on the fire? Um, uh, who knows? I think that was that's been the whole policy of, of, of the Saudis: is sort of spring a surprise, keep the market guessing, keep the speculators guessing. Um, so I don't see any reason why they should change that policy. But um, if there's going to be a, a surplus, then that, the important thing is stocks. They look not just at price; they look at, at global stocks. U.S. stocks are pretty low. They need to be refilled, and they're not going to be refilled at, at, at higher prices. So that's also a bullish factor. Dr. Charles, we, we do have uh, those sort of underpinnings. Um, we have the Chinese Q3 GDP growth uh, coming in uh, this morning at 4.9%, uh, a little bit higher than expectation, despite all the macro headlines. China continues to grow in the demand centers, continues to import solidly uh, over 11 million barrels of oil a day. Um, your thoughts on that demand side holding up uh, despite the macro backdrop? I think the demand uh, is going to carry on growing. I mean, all the all indications is that the demand curve uh, is trending upwards, despite the fact that the IEA 
is trying to cast some doubt. So in a, in a, in a report just released, the IEA says that it sees early signs of demand destruction. Looking at the graphs, it's difficult to believe that that is uh, where, where that is coming from. I mean, the IEA uh, says that global de demand will grow by 2.3 million barrels per day this year, but only 0.9 million barrels per day next year. Um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I think the IEA is doing everything it can to um, demonstrate that uh, fossil fuel consumption, both oil and gas, is going to reach a peak, but none of the real indica indicators uh, support that. Uh, it's uh, almost uh, as uh, Saudi Aramco said, uh, IA, the IEA is on a political um, uh, uh, campaign to drive oil and gas consumption down without actually succeeding in both. Um, uh, I mean, the EIA, the uh, Energy Information Administration, released a report only just recently, and it claims that natural gas demand will carry on growing to uh, 2050. And, and as you know, uh, OPEC uh, expects oil demand to carry on growing. And in reality, uh, all signs we see so far support these views that uh, there is going to be growth both in oil and in gas demand simply because the promises made by renewables are not actually materializing. Renewables are still facing problems, even though um, the use of renewables is increasing. It's not increasing at the rate to uh, cover the increase in global energy demand. So for all of these reasons, uh, I believe that um, oil demand will carry on increasing for a while yet. Daniel, meanwhile, with all that's going on in the world, the, the in China, the Belt and Road Forum is taking place in Beijing. And on a very rare occasion, uh, President Putin of Russia is, is uh, outside of Russia and visiting at this event, uh, sort of consolidating the position and relationship between Russia and China and also sort of doubling down on the Belt and Road uh, sort of project, which is 10 plus years now in the making and then had gone through a few wobbles. How, where do you see the economic outlook for the Belt and Road Initiative in order to drive economic growth across Asia, the great promise and still the Chinese aspiration to achieve that? Yeah, as you say, it has gone through some ups and downs over the last 10 years ago. But I think the, um, the fact reform is going ahead and we're seeing the headlines indicates it remains a key uh, policy objective of the Chinese government, both from an economic standpoint and, of course, from the, um, the more material power play that it helps them build up uh, through the Asian region and helping, you know, in terms of trade corridors, uh, new, open up new trade corridors that might not be more secure than others, and, and it's generally boosting regional trade and their influence. Um, in terms of the outlook for it, obviously, uh, the slower growth or the more disappointing growth and the kind of uh, questions over the durability of the Chinese economy that's starting to come to the surface more this year, not only the near term, you know, they haven't seen the kind of um, short term stimulus that we might have expected in this position growth. OK, we had the upside surprise today, but it hasn't really been as robust as expected. But also the kind of questions we're seeing over a longer term growth projection for China in terms of demographics and the rest of it. So I think 
making a success of it is becoming ever more important, but it's becoming ever harder for the Chinese Chinese economy to, to manifest, um, especially with, you know, you have started to see pushback from some countries in terms of the, the debt, the so-called debt diplomacy and all the rest of it. So I think it's a more uh, challenging outlook perhaps than it was when it was launched, but it still remains a center point of, of their objectives. Hey, uh, at the same time, we have the Belt and Road Forum in Beijing. We have uh, the big uh, event on the annual calendar in the oil industry in London, what used to be oil and money, now the Energy Intelligence Forum, where all the world's biggest CEOs in the oil and gas industry uh, uh, tend to sh to rack up and share some thoughts. We have the biggest of them all, the CEO of Saudi Aramco, saying mm -hmm. oil markets are in balance despite the weak backdrop. Has OPEC called this one right? Ultimately, I mean, not OPEC, ultimately Saudi. OPEC had called a plus a 3 million barrel a day supply deficit. We have the Aramco CEO saying the market is in balance. Yes, I think they did get it right. I mean, you know, they they everybody expected that prices would would shoot up if 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 they increase if they decrease their production. It didn't. Um, you know, we've we've seen a bit of volatility. We had seen a bit of volatility, but not as much as as we saw in the last two weeks. But I, I need to defend the IEA. I'm sorry, but we're not. We, I mean, I say we because I was there. We're not political when it comes to data, when it comes to actually looking at demand, you know, supply demand balances in the in the oil market reports. So I think sometimes the messaging can be a bit sensational by, you know, mm -hmm. by my former boss, but I don't think it's it's you know it's designed. The IA had called a deficit of one point five million barrels a day yeah. uh, supply deficit for the fourth quarter, which could indeed yeah. still be the case. Yeah, exactly. But I, what I mean is that, you know, we go by the numbers, not by, it's not political. Um, and as I said, sometimes you do get these sort of sensational headlines and, and op-eds by, by Fatih Birol, but the data itself is not is non-political because, you know, it's there in the database and that's what we're looking at. Um, but it, it, yes, I mean, I saw what I mean, Nasser said, he said, there's going to, if we don't invest, we're going to have a deficit of, you know, between four and five million, which is natural decline. And in fact, at your, um, you know, at your excellent Frigera um, forum the other, the other week, we were talking about Russian um, oil industry and, and how it really hasn't been impacted by the sanctions, by, you know, the, they're still exporting, they're still managing to produce. It doesn't look like there's going to be any lasting damage to to um, to Russia's industry. So, I think they're. Um, but the other thing I that Amin same... said, which I th thought was interesting, I'd welcome your thoughts on it, uh, Kate. Mm -hmm. Was he highlighted the fact that there is still there is increasingly a greater amount of idle capacity, extra capacity, yeah. spare capacity in the oil markets, three plus million barrels a, d a day, yeah. a nearly alone in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, yeah. This is a, it should be a very bearish signal for the market in regards to any sort of threat to supply. That's been the case since they cut supply. You know, it's not, it's not anything new. He's just saying if he's putting a number to it, there's actually more because if you look at, you know, other countries, if you look at the UAE, for example, they have, you know, a, a lot more spare production capacity. Iraq, if the Kurdistan pipeline opens, will you know, you'll have another half a million. Um, but maybe perhaps so that's think, why we're not seeing see. such a big pop-up in the price on the back of the crisis uh, in Palestine that, that due to that there's so much idle supply at the moment that it would take a major disruption for anything not to be able to be covered. 
Yeah, but let's not forget that's not going to. I mean, he says they can bring it on, you know, pretty quickly. But how quickly? You know, you can't just open the tap. So that takes time. It takes time to ramp up, to sort of maintain a, a, a production at a certain level. So it's not it's not like tomorrow. But yes, it's always been. You know, it is a bearish factor. Um, the other thing is, I think one of the biggest impacts that might be is people are going to start looking at, at the region thinking, you know, do we really want to invest in, in a region that is so volatile? Depends, of, of course, on what happens in, uh, you know, Israel, Hamas, the whole, the whole thing. But I think it's now the Middle East is being tainted as, you know, is it, is it safe to go there? Is it safe to fly there? We've seen, you know, one gas, two gas fields um, in, in the East Med, which is supposed to be, you know, the new gas hub, um, you know, security for Europe, etc., has been shut down precautionary, but you know it just shows how you still have this fear of infrastructure, energy infrastructure in the Middle East being a potential target. You know, you, we, we've seen it before in Saudi Arabia. We're seeing it now. Um, you know, gas supply to to Egypt has been cut. So I think gas, as I keep saying, gas is actually a more important story at the moment um, because if we get a, a cold winter, it's going to be really, really hard to find the extra supplies and Let's not forget that when oil prices shot up in 2022 after the Ukraine invasion, it was we saw a lot of switching oil for gas, which we probably won't see um, at this time. So it's um, you know it's a very volatile situation. Dr. Charles, we also had in London at the Energy Intelligence Forum the Vitol CEO, who was more or less echoing. Uh, the um, the Saudi Aramco CEO that the oil markets there are in balance. But as Kate said, I thought was possibly more interesting and a, a comment he made, which I'd welcome your views on. He said sort of permanent demand destruction in Europe, uh, sort of gas demand destruction in Europe due to the energy crisis over the last year. Your thoughts on that and, and what that means for the outlook on gas? I mean, I agree with that. It seems that um, the the main drive for this demand destruction is the inability of the European industry to recover. Uh, German industry, uh, heavy, especially heavy industry, is moving out of the country, and I think that is permanent. And uh, Germany is uh, going to be as, uh, 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 that much smaller in terms of industrial output than it was before, as a result of high gas prices, which continue. So I, I agree with that. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, Europe is going to see permanent gas destruction. And all of these things we hear about uh, Europe needing much more gas for this reason or for, for another are, are, not, are not going to prove to be right. I think uh, in the longer term, I mean, we, we had um, some results published by European Commission just now showing that uh, Based on last year, this year's gas uh, uh, consumption in Europe was 17% down. And that is expected to continue. I think uh, gas uh, with Repower EU, uh, the poli European policy for energy targeting a 30% reduction in gas consumption by 2030, it seems to be on the way to achieve that. And uh, that um, gas use in Europe will carry on going down towards 2050, at least that's what Europe is targeting. And they seem to be going in that direction, I think for the wrong reasons. I mean, the, the, the reduction in gas demand in Europe is not because renewables are taking its place, oh. because the, uh, the industry is uh, going down. And that is a very unfortunate development uh, following Ukraine. Uh, 
And I don't see that uh, recovering European policies towards industry are incoherent. They are not going far enough to support the industry and the industry is not getting the cheap energy it needs to continue thriving as it was before. These are the problems Europe, Europe is facing. I'm not so sure it, it has yet produced a coherent po policy to, to face these problems. Let's go to the survey question uh, again, just sort of looking at this. What is having the greatest underpinning for the $85, $85-$90 oil market? China demand, despite the headlines, continues to be quite solid. Saudi unilateral cuts we've talked about has clearly been a game changer in the markets this uh, this year. Uh, the geopolitics that are uh, undergoing, obviously, the war in Ukraine, now the war in Palestine, and or none of the above. What is having the greatest underpinning for $85, $90 oil market? Uh, all of the above, obviously, I didn't put there, but... Uh, which do you think is the main pillar that gives this market? Obviously, uh, the market was already enjoying lofty heights just before the recent geopolitical crisis. Uh, but where do you put the main underpinning? Daniel, uh, the main underpinning could be in the Saudi unilateral cuts. But the consequence of that, of course, is that uh, the, the Saudis GDP numbers are down for the year, given the, the loss in revenue, lower oil price, lower oil production. So the combination of both on the average for the year is less than in, in the Saudi. And I'm wondering from uh, Emirates MBD Bank's analysis on the outlook for the for the Saudi economy with this massive ambitions, will they have to curtail them in any way given this uh, decline? Obviously, last year was an exceptional year. You can't expect that every year. But where do you see the impact given the massive ambitions that Saudi Arabia currently has? Yeah, I think for the time being, those ambitions remain in play. Maybe they won't be manifested quite as swiftly as they might have hoped. Uh, headline GDP there is going to be weaker, but like I said earlier, the non-oil sector is still looking pretty strong, and not just in terms of those headline-generating investments, but in terms of like, the general uh, general ongoing growth in, in various sectors there. Uh, budget, we do now expect a modest budget deficit this year, down from a surplus around 2.5% of GDP last year. We expect deficit now of around 0.5% of GDP. So it's not something that's overly worried at present and we've seen the oil price tick back up obviously it's a moving part in terms of the break even if they're cutting production as well right so that that changes but I don't think it's overly concerning as it stands but obviously from a long-term basis but they can't be they can't be doing those plans if oil falls back significantly lower, right? But as, as things are presently, I, I think they're still in quite a comfortable shape even if budget surplus isn't going to be what we expected this year. Hey, last word to you, uh, uh, just the what the President uh, Biden coming to the region today, it appeared the big summit with Egypt, Jordan, and, and the Palestinian leadership, Palestinian Authority leadership uh, 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 meeting seems to be falling apart given the backdrop. Uh, can they move the dial on this in any way, do you think, to change the trajectory? President Biden does seem to be putting all his eggs in this basket for an American president, high-risk poker. Yeah, I think it is. And, and that's what I meant about, you know, it's, it's, it's been very polarizing. Suddenly the, the Americans who have sort of took their eye off the Middle East uh, are playing superpower again, you know, but one of the, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the, the, 
the, the rise of, of the other powers, the Asian powers, and it's partly because America took took its eye off the ball. Uh, now they're back, and 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 I think it's it's. I mean, the risk of radicalization everywhere. I think MI five has said it. U.S. intelligence has said it because it's just inflamed so many passions on both sides in in Europe, you know, across Asia. So. Um, and let's not forget, you know, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, Saudi economy, uh, the Gulf economy. Uh, you know, they've got enough in their coffers, they can withstand it. But look at countries like Egypt, which is really, you know, in a really bad way. Inflation is about 39 percent. So it's uh, you have to look at the region as a whole, which is in a bit of a mess at the moment. So um, but um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, the um, Charles, when we were talking about Europe, yes, obviously, Europe does have very, very high targets and high ambitions. But one of the reasons why gas was down in, in Europe was because they were burning more coal. I mean, you know, that's, that's a reality. Um, so the transition is moving, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at numbers here and it's really quite frightening with all the big solar projects that we have in the UAE, the percentage is still pretty, pretty small when you look at it globally. But um, yeah, I think we're in for a volatile a period. How prices are going to react, I don't know, but it, it doesn't look like this is gonna be over soon. And even if it is, I think we're going to feel the consequences of it for a long time to come. Well, with that note, we will wrap up uh, the Daily Energy Markets podcast, uh, Brent crude oil trading at 91.35. When you consider all of the context and all of the issues we've touched on, it does still seem like a relatively calm oil market despite the backdrop uh, thank you so much uh, kate durian for your words and insights today dr charles elinas in cyprus and daniel richards at uh, emirates mbd here in dubai thank you so much uh, we'll see everybody every morning 10 30 uae time all the best